Father, I ask a blessing on this room of my brothers and sisters, a blessing, Father, of of safety, physically, Father, that we would be protected from any illness because we come into your house, we listen to your word, and we wanna be a part of this study. I pray also, Father, and more importantly, for their spiritual development, their nourishment, their growth, the strengthening that comes only by the study of your word. And Father, I thank you that our, our priority is on that and that our concerns, uh, Father, for whatever else might come our way, pale in comparison to our concerns that we do not take full advantage of what you offer in your word. And so, Father, help us today study and learn. Help us today, Father, to understand the text, but more importantly, help us to see where this new information, the knowledge you impart to us tonight, Father, is meant to be applied in our lives. There is not an opportunity for me to apply it to everyone in every possible way, Father. You don't expect that, and thankfully, we don't depend on that because your spirit, Father, is active and living here in the body of each of us who know you by faith and He alone, Father, will make the application that needs to be made. I pray for that now for everyone's sake and that we have the courage and the obedience to carry out what we're told. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, last week was the dreaded introduction to the book. There's always that first week you have to get through it, then you're past it, now you get into the good stuff. So that's behind us. Time to move into the heart of the story, and that begins with a period of transition and a period of ultimately blessing for the nation of Israel. So I'm going to reset you a little bit in the history of where we're going, and then we're gonna pick up again right at the beginning of chapter two in 2 Samuel. It uh, starts up here after David has learned that Saul has died, and he now has, by default, become king, or at least he should be. And after 40 years of rule in Israel under the, quote, wrong king, under Saul, the nation is now about to receive a king after God's own heart, as the Bible describes David. And the turn that will accompany this change in power is dramatic. The nation's gonna go through a considerable period of blessing and growth, fertility, uh, provision. God is gonna show his uh, love for his people in how he blesses the rule of David. And it instigates this remarkable period of Israel's growth to an ascent of the greatest power on the earth under Solomon, ultimately. But we aren't there yet. Everyone in the nation is yet to embrace David as king, and right away, even as David has just heard that Saul has died, a division is going to emerge within the nation of Israel in the wake of Saul's passing, and that's what we start to get into in the early chapters of this book. Beginning tonight, chapter two, verse one. And then it came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. So David said, where shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David brought up his men who were with him, each of his household, and they lived in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, and there anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed of the Lord because you have shown this kindness to Saul your Lord and have buried him. Now may the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you. I also will show this goodness to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant for Saul your Lord is dead and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. There is some historical and geographical 
background you have to have at this point to get what's going on. There's some intrigue here, some political intrigue that is important to where the story goes, and so I need to give you that short lesson. I'm gonna do that with some slides as well. So let's start with a map. The nation of Israel back in Joshua's time was settled according to tribe, and you can see the general borders of the tribes in this map. And right after Joshua died, the nation became ruled by judges, and the judges who came up and ruled during a period of several hundred years came from different tribes at different times. And they would rule for a period of years, and then they would die, and another one would be appointed. And this went on for centuries. And during that time, there was no capital city, and there wasn't even a temple, because at this point there hadn't been one built. We just have the tent tabernacle, and it would move a little bit from time to time, primarily between a place called Bethel and a place called Shiloh in the central area of the Judean hill country. Now, for that reason, during this period of their history, the nation maintained a strong tribal identity. They were one people under the Old Covenant, but the tribes tended to see themselves as separate and distinct from one another, not as one whole nation. Think of it like perhaps the colonies of the United States before it became a single nation. And in that current, in that period of their history, naturally the larger tribes, numerically and geographically, dominated the nation over the smaller tribes. So that meant in the north, Manasseh and Ephraim, and in the south, Judah, were the predominantly dominant tribes among the 12, among the 13 if you count Levi. And because you see that division, more or less, Manasseh and Ephraim in the north, Judah in the south, that began a north-south division, and that division gained strength over time, over the history of the nation. Ultimately, in the time of the kings, when it really began to take hold. And after the time of Judges, when the nation demanded their first king, Samuel anointed Saul. Saul came from the tribe of Benjamin. If you look on the map, you'll see where Benjamin sits there, kind of in the middle, not very big. And in at least one way, Saul was the perfect man to lead Israel because he came from essentially a neutral tribe. Benjamin was one of the smaller tribes, as you can see on the map. And so when the king came from that tribe, it didn't upset the power balance between Manasseh and Ephraim in the north and Judah in the south. No one was gaining any advantage by virtue of the king coming out of Benjamin, so that allowed the north and the south to accept him. Moreover, if you notice, Benjamin is located on the Jewish version of the Mason-Dixon line. They're right on the border between the north and the south, and that just further enabled both the northern tribes and the southern tribes to embrace a king from the tribe of Benjamin. No, no one felt particularly threatened by that, which made him the perfect man to unite the, the tribes of Israel as their first king. And he even maintained his headquarters in a place called Gilbeah. So this is the north, more or less. This is the south, more or less. And Gilbeah was right there. Much in the same way that in the United States they chose to put Washington, D.C. right at the Mason-Dixon line as a way of uh, placating both sides. But in time, this north-south rivalry uh, became more serious. And after Saul's death, it returned. Actually, even before he died, it was starting to come back into the foreground of the politic. Um, if you remember in the story of Saul, there's a point in which Saul takes the Ark of the Lord out of the tabernacle and brings it into battle against the Philistines, unwisely so, and it is captured in that battle. The Philistines take the Ark of the Lord for a period of time. And before it was taken, it was in a place called Shiloh, which is not far from Gilbeah. 
And remember, under the law, Jews had to travel to the, the Jewish tabernacle or to the place of worship routinely as part of an annual worship practice in the feasts of the, of the law. So if you have to travel, men had to travel to, to the ark uh, to worship three times a year, three of the feasts every year. Well, if you put the ark somewhere in the middle, everybody goes about the same distance. But when the ark got moved after Saul got it back from the Philistines, he put it somewhere where it would be better protected. He put it up in Jabesh Gilead. Now, Jabesh Gilead is solidly in the north, and anyone who was traveling from the south now had a much further distance to go to get to the ark and be part of the worship that it required, and for that matter, you're traveling through the north's territory to get there. Made it a little more tricky. People weren't as happy about that, and it started to set up a bit of a rivalry between the south and the north again because of this movement of the ark. That was the first trigger. The second trigger that renewed the rivalry happened when Samuel appointed David as Saul's successor. Here you have a man from the tribe of Judah. That just cemented the north-south rivalry because now the northern tribes are worried that this power shift is gonna result in the south becoming more dominant and uh, taking greater control over all 12 tribes. So you have this rivalry in which the ark is in the north, the anointed king is in the south, and there's a bit of a struggle over that. And this fight only grows worse when Saul dies. Because now the question is, will David succeed Saul or not? And this leads ultimately to the tensions we're seeing in this chapter. If you know where this goes, if you know the story of Israel's history, then you know it it really reaches ahead in Solomon's day. After Solomon's death, the north-south split is now so ingrained and the fight over control is so severe that they actually split. Civil war breaks out and you end up with the northern nation of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. But as you're gonna see in the text that I just read, the seeds of that division are already showing up here. If you were paying attention, you may have noticed in 2 Samuel 2 that the names Israel and Judah are being used already in this chapter to distinguish the north and the south. This is hundreds of years before you get into the entrenchment of north-south, not hundreds, but a long time before you get into the true civil war. Look in verse nine. You see in verse nine, the northern tribes are called Israel, and the southern tribe, in verse 10, is called Judah. So as 2 Samuel opens up here in chapter two, you see the earliest indications that the nation is straining a little to maintain a common identity as one people. And that struggle will come back to the foreground throughout this book, certainly in the early chapters. Let's turn now to the text again. Verse one, David asked the Lord if he shall go up to Judah. Now remember, David has been hiding from Saul outside the land of Judah in the land of the Philistines to the southwest of Judah. Now he's moved back into a place called Ziklag. And Ziklag is just outside that blue line on the lower left side on the map. And he asked the Lord, should I go back up into Judah? And he's told, yes, go to Hebron. And that arrow you see is pointing to Hebron. So David is gonna go straight back into the heart of Judah. Now, David had the high priest with him. This happened back in 1 Samuel. The high priest of Israel defected from Saul, recognizing David was the proper king, and moved where David is. And David's had the benefit of the high priest with him, with the ephod, and with the human and thuman, which are the stones that the high priest could use to discern the will of God on any matter. So David's had this magic decoder ring everywhere he went, and whenever he needed to know what God wanted him to do, he could turn to the high priest and get an answer. And that's what he's doing here, although it's not mentioned specifically. We know that's where David 
is getting such specific answers from. If you're not familiar with how those stones work, you can go back and study them in Exodus, but basically you ask a yes-no question and the stones are thrown like dice and they tell you what the answer from God is and God uses that to speak to the nation of Israel in that time. And so he asks, where do I go? And the answer eventually he finds is Hebron. So David is asking the Lord specifically, what am I to do here? What's interesting to me about this is you can see the growth of this man from the decade or more in which he was fleeing from Saul. Because having the ability to hear from God and receive God's counsel, that is not unique. Nor is that a mark of spiritual maturity. Every believer has the opportunity to approach the throne of God boldly and seek the Lord in prayer. And every believer is promised in Scripture, in 1 John, that the Lord always answers your prayers in one form or another. God never not answers a prayer. When people say, God's not answering my prayer, I turn them to 1 John, you're wrong. You're not hearing it. You're not aware of it. Or he's just been telling you the same thing the whole time and you keep waiting for a different answer. No, that's not the mark of spiritual maturity. The mark of spiritual maturity is making the effort to take advantage of that. To make a decision guided by the Lord. To actually ask. That's spiritually maturity. The opportunity, the ability to hear from God, no, that's universal. The act to make an effort to ask, no, that's a sign of spiritual maturity. And David's maturity is seen here in a way that you hadn't always seen in the past in his story from 1 Samuel. That is, the answer of, do I go back to Judah? Look, that seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? Saul's dead. He's the only reason you weren't there to begin with. Yes, go back, David. But he doesn't take that for granted. He asks the Lord. And I think perhaps this quality more than anything else in the story of David is what made him a good leader. He stayed in the will of God, mostly. And the Lord tells David here, yes, go up to Judah, go to Hebron. And he eventually tells him to go to Hebron because I think Hebron is the highest point in Judah. It sits on a very high plain in Judah and so that would make it a strategic advantage in warfare to be camped in a place where you can see a long distance and you can protect yourself. So we're told he goes with his men, notably uh, the, the men and their families and you notice he brings his, not one, but two wives. And the mention of David having multiple wives here just reminds us David is not perfect. In fact, The juxtapositioning of verse one and verse two here seems designed to balance one another. That is, on the one hand, David is a man who seeks God in everything, even to the point of, do I go here or do I go there? And on the other hand, David always had women problems. And chief among them, taking multiple wives. To be clear, for anyone who's not certain on this, the Bible teaches marriage is a relationship between a man and a woman and no more. And in Israel's case specifically, God told them in the law that kings were never to take multiple wives. In Deuteronomy 17, 14, the Lord says, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. See, God knew that would happen. Verse 15, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen. You shall set his king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who's not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, Solomon, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not, the king shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, Solomon, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. So multiple marriages is outlawed in the law. And and by the way, not just for kings, the king is the 
poster child of the nation. If the king can't do it, ain't nobody going to do it. So, in effect, that is a prohibition against anyone in Israel ever having multiple wives. If you shocked that they broke the law, <laughs> go read Judges. They made a habit of it. And, judge, and there's nothing shocking about the fact that they disobeyed a law. Just don't get anyone's bad advice telling you that, oh, no, God never said you can't have multiple wives. Look at all the patriarchs. Look at all the kings. Look at all the, Yeah, they all sinned. They all shouldn't have done it. Don't run after their sin. All right, for anyone who might be confused on that point. Meanwhile, what we're learning here is David had to have taken those additional wives without seeking God's counsel, right? If he had gone to the Lord, as he did about going to Hebron, and said, should I have a second wife? Do you know what the answer would be? God's not gonna tell him something different than he's already told him in his law. So we know the answer would have been, I've already kind of covered this for you, David. Go look at Deuteronomy. He would have been told no. So obviously he didn't ask. And that's the pattern I told you about last week when I introduced David. That is, David shows so much insight at times, so much obedience, except in the area of women. And of course, the worst will come later in his life when he engages in murder and adultery over a woman. But as I also said, this issue of David struggling over women is connected to a larger problem for him. No close confidant, no friend. I'm not making excuses for it. I'm just saying he was a perpetually lonely guy, I would argue, or at least struggled with that. And he was always under attack, so it makes some sense he searches for earthly companionship and he never finds the satisfaction that it offers. The lesson in that, which we will cover much more later, is simply that you know, looking for love in all the wrong places is gonna get you in trouble, and he does that repeatedly, rather than relying on the Lord. Now, back to the text, verse four. After David arrives with the men of Judah, uh, his men, rather, in Hebron, the men of Judah come to him, and that's a reference to the leaders of, of, the, of the tribe, the elders of the tribe, the decision makers. They come and they anoint David as king, in keeping with what Saul had designated years earlier when David was anointed. But you notice it's only the men of Judah. They come alone, one tribe. And what that means is that at this point, David is king of a tribe. He's king of Judah. No other tribe sends any representatives. No one else is acknowledging him as king. And their conspicuous absence telegraphs the conflict that is about to begin. The men of Judah tell David in the course of this that Saul was buried by the men of Jabesh-Gilead. Now remember, Jabesh-Gilead is up here where I've already pointed, and we saw last week that Saul's body, after he was killed in battle, was taken by the Philistines, beheaded, along with his three sons, and their headless bodies were basically nailed to the wall of a place called Beth Shean, the ruins of which are still there. And uh, that short distance between where he was hung up on the walls and where Jabesh Gilead is shows you why they were the closest to go retrieve him and give him a proper burial, a burial that's consistent with honor. And David, after he hears this news, he sees an opportunity. This is an opportunity to build a bridge with the northern tribes, maybe even unite with them if they'll listen. So he sends messengers up there to those in Jabesh Gilead and he thanks them. And he says, this was a kindness you offered our Lord Saul. The Lord will bless you for this kindness. He says, in fact, I'm gonna bless you for this kindness to our Lord, that is to Saul. And um, as a result, I want to have an opportunity to bless you, to enter into a covenant. That's the implication here when he uses the term loving kindness. That's a covenantal term. And he ends it by saying, oh, by the way, I've been anointed king of Judah. So his purpose here is pretty obvious, right? He's extending an olive branch 
to the north, thanking them, and offering an opportunity for them to unite under his leadership if they want to, and if they do, then he's prepared to protect them and take care of them. There's a bit of an agreement implied here. He's just hoping that the guys in the north, when they see this coming from David, they'll understand that his coronation is a a fait accompli. It's basically already happened. Let's just all fall in line and go with it. And unfortunately, they don't, as you might expect. There are already forces in the north at this point working against David to prevent him from taking rule, and this introduces the other side of the intrigue. Now we're gonna shift up to what's going on in the north in verse eight. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ish-bosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim and made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, and over Benjamin, even over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he was king for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So we have some timeline to work out, and we have some new characters in our story here, beginning with Abner. Abner is the commander of Saul's army, and he takes another character that's new here, Ishbosheth, to Mahanaim. So on this map, here's Mahanaim, just for reference. So he takes Ishbosheth there. We'll talk about him more in a minute. Let's talk about Abner first. Abner was first introduced in 1 Samuel 14. So back in 1 Samuel, you first hear about this man. He is the son of Saul's uncle, which makes him a cousin with Saul. And he was a rival of David because Saul made David the leader of his men of war. So think of him as the the general in the field for David's, for Saul's army, but Abner was the commander of the armed forces. So in our terms, maybe a chief of staff versus the general on the field. But that put them in a place of a bit of rivalry. Who's really in charge? Who's really running things? And of course, on top of all that, David was incredibly successful in battle, so that always made anyone else jealous, including Saul. So Abner obviously has a strong personal interest in seeing Saul's family retain control of the throne. And he worries about his future should David take charge. And now that Saul's gone, he moves, Abner moves quickly to fill the vacuum. And he installs a puppet leader. And this is a man he can control. This is a man who is weak. And Abner knows that if he can get this guy to have the power in the north, he basically runs the place behind the scenes. So he goes to a man who can do this for him, who can play this role a man named Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth is, as far as Abner knows, Saul's last living son. And as such, he's someone you could argue is the rightful king. I mean, he is the descendant of the prior king. His name, Ishbosheth, is probably not his given name. Why do I know that? Well, in 1 Chronicles 8, where a story of this man is told there, he is called Ishbaal which is man of the Lord. Baal is God or Lord. Ish is man. So Ish Baal, man of the Lord. But here he's being called Ish Bosheth, which means man of shame. Man of shame. In fact, from 2 Samuel 2 to 2 Samuel 4, his name is Ish Bosheth the whole way through. What it suggests is he's not a man of strong moral courage. He doesn't necessarily have a strong character. In fact, it may be the case that he wasn't killed in the battle because he was too afraid to go to battle. And that may be the only reason why he's still alive. That may be why he's being called man of shame. In any case, he's a pawn now in this power struggle between David and Abner. 
Abner brings him to Mahanaim, which is effectively their Jerusalem in the north right now, if you want to think of it that way, their headquarters. He anoints him king over numerous regions. So he goes into a place, this is in a place called Gilead, and if you look at the list there in the text I just read, as it mentions all the places he's king over, it starts with Gilead, that's a region on the eastern side of the Jordan, Transjordan, and then it goes to the Asherites, that's the tribe of Asher, way up on the coast of the Mediterranean, present-day Lebanon, the Jezreel Valley, Jezreelites, Ephraim, of course, the major tribe in the north along with Manasseh, Benjamin, that's the tribe on the border, and as it just sums up, and all of Israel. There's your term for the northern tribes, Israel, being used there. So, in summary, Abner makes Ishbosheth king over the northern tribes, while David has been crowned king of Judah, which is effectively Simeon, Judah, and, and Reuben. And this now is a tantamount to dividing the tribes into two nations, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. So if you think that the first time this ever came about was when Solomon died and his civil war breaks out, no, it actually got its start here. That's how far back their division goes. And this split will continue now for a little while with Ishbosheth reigning in the, in the north, starting at the age of 40, as we heard, and David reigning in the south. And you hear the numbers being given there. We're told that this is the chart from last week, so here's your, your overview of the length of life and the length of reign for the various men in the book of First and Second Samuel, and then a little bit of Solomon there. Let's zero in on where Saul dies and David's reign begins. Let's just zero in on that. What you're learning is there's a gap there. And the gap has two timelines. We hear that David rules for seven and a half years over just Judah, and Ishbosheth rules for two years over the north. Why is there a difference between the two? That's two years before, seven years before David gets all of it. Because it apparently takes about five years for Abner and Ishbosheth to consolidate control over the northern tribes. They announce it at the beginning of that seven and a half year period, but it takes a good five years before everybody's in line. And then for only two years at the end, does he actually control it all? That's what you're learning. All right, so Abner is really, you gotta think of it this way. Ishbosheth, just purely a puppet, Abner's running the show. David in the south, is waiting for his opportunity as God has appointed. And there's obviously tension between these two throughout this time. And each side looks for some way to gain an upper hand on the other so they can consolidate the 12 tribes under their control, right? And one of these conflicts, one occasion, is especially brutal. We see that next in verse 12. Now Abner the son of Ner went out from Mahanaim to Gideon with the servants of Ishbosheth and the, the son of Saul. And Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David, went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, one on the one side of the pool, the other on the other side of the pool. Then Abner said to Joab, now let the young men arise and hold a contest before us. And Joab said, let them arise. So they arose and went out by count, 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. Each one of them seized his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side so they fell down together. Therefore, that place is called Helkath Hazarim, which is in Gibeon. That day, the battle was very severe and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. All right, not, not giving you all the detail here. You gotta read between the lines. That's my job. I'll help you here. 
So the meeting is at first an attempt at brokering some kind of agreement between the two sides. That's, that's the stated purpose. That's the supposed reason to get together. And they come together, back to our map, uh, they come together at a place called Gibeon. So you have the northern tribes headquarters in Mahanaim and they travel south into the central area of the Judean hill country in the land of Benjamin to a place called Gibeon and they sit by a giant pool. Now the pool's been excavated. I've been there. I've walked down into it and I got some pictures for you. So this is what it looks like today but in its day this pool uh, was a silo that had part of itself up above ground and part of it below ground. And it was relatively big, huge for that day, 37 feet across, 35 feet above ground, which is obviously gone now, and 45 feet underground. And if you were to go look inside it, you can see there's a stairwell that's wide enough for two or three people to stand abreast and walk down the side of this wall going down 40-something feet. And it held water. And it was famous in that day. People knew it well. It was a stopping point because of its uh, significance. And you know, it was a landmark. So they get to this place and they meet on either side of it, maybe so that it gave a little separation, a little chance to kind of defend yourself, or maybe it's just because it was a, an icon, everyone knew where it was. But as they get into the peace discussion, it doesn't get very far before Abner suggests, why don't we just put this to a test, a test of conflict, a contest. We'll have our men stand up and they'll fight each other. And the idea is simply this, that whoever can win those individual battles is showing that they could have persevered if the whole nation had gone to war. And that in itself should be reason to say, we'll give the victory to whoever wins this contest. It's like an all or nothing fight to the death. Whoever wins gets the whole 12 tribes. And Joab says, okay, let's try this. And they get 12 men on either side, probably to represent the 12 tribes. So on either side, you have 12 men, each representing, if you will, the 12 tribes. And they pair these men up two at a time. One man fights another man. One man fights another. The idea is 12 rounds. Whoever wins the most rounds wins. Only the problem is, in each of the 12 engagements, both men die. And it's a draw. 100%, everybody dies. So both sides watch these men. And you can see, you can, you can kind of imagine how the, the men watching this would have been thinking and acting, right? They're kind of rooting for their side. It's like watching a, a cockfight or a, a boxing match. Or, you know, they, they kind of get into the emotion of it. Um, that is, you know, their tensions boil over. Passions are running high. Everyone's waiting for one of their sides to win. They're down to the last match. No one's won yet. It's all riding on one guy winning at the end, and they still both die. And... As it turns out from that point, the whole of both groups just decide to fight each other at that point. They don't know what else to do. So it stops being a contest and now becomes an all-out battle among the two delegations that have gone to, quote, negotiate peace. And in the ensuing combat, we're told, David's forces, led by Joab, get the upper hand and they begin to chase Abner and the northern forces. And that's where we go now, verse 18. Now the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab and Abishiah and Asahel. And Asahel was as swift-footed as one of the gazelles, which is in the field. Asahel pursued Abner and did not turn to the right or to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, is that you, Asahel? And he answered, it is I. So Abner said to him, turn to your right or to your left. Take hold of one of the young men for yourself. Take for yourself his spoil. But Asahel was not willing to turn aside from following him. Abner repeated again to Asahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? 
However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the belly with the butt end of the spear so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died on the spot. And it came about that all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. All right, so the delegation that David has sent out, they have, it consists of Joab as the leader, but he's got two brothers with him. And these three sons from the same family, Joab, uh, Abishai, and Asahel, are collectively sort of the leaders of the southern delegation. And Asahel is apparently a fast dude. In fact, Jewish folklore after this came about says that he could outrun a horse. And he's quoted here as being as fast as a gazelle, which is pretty close to that. So he doesn't appear to be a very skilled warrior, though. And he can run fast, but then he's like a dog chasing a car. He get, once he gets it, he doesn't know what to do with it. So he's, he's catching up to Abner. Abner's telling this young man, you don't want to fight me. You should fight one of these other guys. You don't want to fight me. And Abner at first may seem worried about that, but as you hear it play out, he's actually more concerned about killing a kid that can't possibly beat him. And when Asahel refuses to stop chasing, uh, Abner decides to stop. And interestingly, he uses the butt end of his spear uh, against the guy, not the, the pointy end, which suggests maybe that he was just trying to hurt him, stop him, not necessarily kill him. That doesn't seem to be what he wanted. But the kid's running so fast, he literally impales himself on the wood and dies. And then we're told the rest of David's men catch up to that place in the moment, seeing Asahel on the ground dead, they just stop. They don't know what to do at that point. They're taken aback. But Asahel's brothers, the other two brothers, continue to pursue Abner while the rest of the men just sort of sit there. And I I assume, as you see further in the story, I assume others join um, Joab and Abishai as they continue because we hear about more people later. Verse 24, but Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And when the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which is in front of Giah by the way of the wilderness of Gibeon. The sons of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became one band, and they stood on the top of a certain hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the end? How long will you refrain from telling the people to turn back from following their brothers? Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely then the people would have gone away in the morning, each from following his brother. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the people halted and pursued Israel no longer, nor did they continue to fight any more. Abner and his men then went through the Arbaal that night. So they crossed the Jordan, walking all morning, and they came to Manaim. Then Joab returning, uh, returned from following Abner. When he had gathered all the people together, 19 of David's servants besides uh, Asahel were missing. But the servants of David had struck down many of Benjamin and Abner's men, so that 360 men died. And they took up Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem, Then Joab and his men went all night until the day dawned at Hebron. So by the end of that day of fighting, you have Joab and Abishai pursuing Abner further north into the desert mountain wilderness of Gibeon, which was in the territory of Benjamin. You can see it up there. So they just kind of go forward north up through the hill country. And they reach a point where Abner gets help from some Benjamites who form a little brigade around him on a high hill, which gives him a tactical advantage. And from that position, Abner sees an opportunity to put the thing to rest. He calls for a truce, and he says somewhat disingenuously, you know, only more fighting. Fighting is just going to create more loss, just going to create more bitterness. How much longer are we going to hold out doing this? And Joab responds correctly, well, you know, you started it. 
Back when you said, let's do the contest thing. You know, if we hadn't done that, we wouldn't have been in this trouble to begin with, which is true. But at the same time, Joab realizes, I can't beat this guy under these circumstances. So he blows the horn, tells his men to retreat. And as you can see, both groups just walk the rest of the evening back to their homes, Mahanaim or Hebron. So after this is over, David's lost 20 men in this. But Abner's lost 360 men. And Joab... In seeing that difference, it begins to change the balance of power between the two nations at this point. Joab took uh, Asahel, buried him in Bethlehem, as you hear, and with that severe loss, Abner's forces now begin to unravel under Ishbosheth's rule in the north, and ultimately it's going to lead to Abner's death down the road. But in effect, what this loss did on both sides is it began to show that there wasn't going to be a reconciliation, number one or even a truce for two nations to live in peace. There's going to have to be some kind of, of takeover, one for the other. And it showed that the South had the power right now because they had the military strength of David leading them to say nothing, of course, of God's power behind him. And so it begins a period of open hostility, uh, principally because the South sees the opportunity and knows they have the upper hand. They begin instigating warfare, and it allows David's superior military might to take control slowly. And you see that conflict now in chapter three. We're going just to the first part of three so we can sort of see how this story plays out. Chapter three, verse one. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew steadily stronger, but the house of Saul grew weaker continually. Sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. And his second was Chileab, by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, and the third, Absalom, the son of Machah, the daughter of Talmiah, king of Jeshur, and the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith, and the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ithream, by David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David at Hebron. Seems like a bit of a strange insertion there, right, talking about his family, but it fits in. The conflict that was instigated by Abner last chapter And the ill-advised combat and all that came out of that has now strengthened David. And so you see it begins this period of long warfare. And the house of Saul, which is always a reference to Abner, because he's effectively running the show behind Ishbosheth, it grows weaker. They lose men, they lose materials, they lose ground. Meanwhile, David is prospering, and that's the contrast you want to see here. David is in Hebron with his family, too many wives, but putting that aside for a minute, and Each of these wives is producing sons for him, and that's obviously a blessing. His first son, Amnon, is born to his wife, and Ahinoam, who was a a woman from the region of the Jezreel Valley in Israel. Then you have Chileab, the born to Abigail, uh, Absalom, born to uh, Makah, fourth son, born to a fifth wife, uh, sixth son, born to additional wives, and so on. He's collecting wives and sons annually, it seems, Um, And he'll continue doing this to some extent as long as he's king. Altogether in scripture, you find out David had eight wives. He had something like 20-something sons. It says at one point in in 2 Samuel, he had other wives, other concubines. So we don't even know what the full number is. Most of those additional marriages were being made to establish political alliances so that he could shore up his power with somebody else, some other power, some other nation, some other tribe. You know, when he marries someone's daughter, they become aligned in that way. Now, as I said earlier, these wives are just evidence of a sinful pattern on David's part, and they are acts contrary to the law. In fact, the law doesn't just say you can't have multiple wives. To the king specifically in Deuteronomy 7, 
It says you cannot marry for political advantage with the nations around you, which is exactly what he's doing. So he's doing the wrong thing for the wrong reasons rather than seeking the Lord's counsel and the Lord's direction. But nonetheless, the Lord is blessing David and in particular through the marriages with sons. The consequences of his sin in this regard will eventually come to bear on his life in a variety of ways, some of which you already know or may know. But even still, in the meantime, as God did with Jacob, for example, the Lord is going to extend David kindness in the form of many sons and daughters through all of those wives. And what that means for us, and this is where I think it becomes very applicable, very relevant, for us, even in a society where multiple wives is not the norm, obviously. Nonetheless, it's reminding you that God's grace in your life does not wait for your obedience. God's grace does not wait for your obedience. And as strange as that may sound to some of you, God blesses us apart from our obedience, at least in this life, if not in the the next, because you cannot earn his grace. (laughs) Grace is unmerited. Those of you who think you have to merit grace, you don't understand grace. So you're not blessed by God's grace because you deserve it. You receive God's grace because you don't deserve it. That's why it's called grace and not wages, right? So David, God's blessing, by the way, has to be independent of your good behavior because you'd never get it otherwise. And it cannot be lost by bad behavior, otherwise it wouldn't be grace, That's something that takes a while, even for a Christian who knows their Bible, to really understand. You're not supposed to let that become excuse to sin, obviously, but you cannot start this quid pro quo kind of mindset with God where I do good things and then I get my blessing. That may have been what your mom said, but your mom wasn't an expert in grace. (laughs) David was blessed with fertility and many sons because that was God's choice to bless him and support the man he chose as king. It doesn't mean God endorsed his choice of multiple wives, but nor was God gonna restrict his blessing of David because David messed up. If that's how it worked, who could be blessed? And that's the point of the story, I think, in this section. That is, David waited patiently for the day that the Lord is going to finally give him the role as king over the 12 tribes, which he knows is promised. When that finally comes, he'll see all that God has asked or, or, or promised him. But in the meantime, he's still being blessed. And in that way, you begin to see a connection between David and Jesus. And I've mentioned this last week, you certainly probably knew this already, but David is a well-known picture of Jesus in many ways. Now, obviously, when we say someone pictures Jesus, that picture will, by necessity, be limited and incomplete, right? Every person apart from Christ has sin. So you can't compare anyone to Jesus in some kind of comprehensive form. But in some aspects of of the lives of those in Scripture, like David, like Joseph, for example, or even in the simple case of Isaac, there are moments that clearly picture Jesus and are intended to. And in David's case, there are so many of these pictures in in the course of his life, which is why he's trotted out as an example of Jesus often. And one of those moments is this one. David producing sons while waiting to receive the throne. The Bible says the Lord right now is waiting for his people Israel to receive him as their king. And they had that opportunity when he came to them the first time. If you've been with me in the study of Matthew, you know what I'm referring to. Matthew chapter 12 
the unforgivable sin, Jesus asking Israel to receive him, them rejecting him, and as they did that, they lost the opportunity for the kingdom to come to them in that generation, back in A.D. 30 or so. But it's not the last chance. God is not done with his people Israel. They will see him rule over them at some point. He will have his role as king of Israel seated in the seat of David, ruling from Jerusalem over a kingdom he has promised to Israel and to us. But he's waiting for them to receive him. In the meantime, that's something that will happen at some future point. And in the meantime, uh, just as David, by the way, offered himself to Israel and he's waiting for the rest of the nation to receive him in the meantime, in the current circumstances we're studying, there's your parallel. But in the meantime, David is having many sons and daughters, which is showing that David is still being blessed by God, even as God has yet to give David the kingdom that David knew would be his one day. And likewise, The Bible says that Jesus is bringing many sons and daughters to glory. In the meantime, as a blessing, as God blesses the son with his bride, even as he is waiting for the day that he will receive the right to rule over all Israel, which is promised to him. Paul says in Galatians 3.26, you are all sons, or we could say daughters, of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free man, neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So in this simple little moment, David is picturing the way the Lord works to Uh, produce a family for David that will in the future be part of this kingdom when David receives it. He will bring his sons with him. He will bring his daughters with him. They will all be in the kingdom together. But in the meantime, they're sitting in Hebron waiting for the kingdom. And that is a picture of what we know right now. We're waiting with Jesus in our own Hebron, so to speak, waiting for the time when Jesus gets what he's promised. And when he gets it, we get it because we're part of the family. That's David's perspective. He's building his court even as he waits for the day to rule over the country. And the Lord's blessing of David here tells you something about why the Lord blesses anyone. It's not for our own sake. Going back to what I said a minute ago, you're not receiving blessing because you did good things necessarily and they're not going away because you're not perfect because again, who could have anything? God blesses us for his own purposes, ultimately for his own glory. And in David's case, having a man who was blessed by a family of children and with the fertility that came with it, magnified him among his own people and gave God glory as a result. And when Jesus goes into the kingdom with an uncountable number of men and women from every tribe, nation, tongue, and corner of the planet, God will be glorified in that, having brought to faith so many from nothing, people who were his enemy, but he made a member of his family by the adoption through his grace. That will be a testimony for the glory of Christ, to have that assembly with him, not for our own sake, but for the sake of God's own glory. And that is a picture too, because we know when Israel finally receives what the Lord has offered them and they embrace their Messiah, it will bring a time of great blessing for them, yes, but for all of us who've been waiting for that to happen. And Paul says it this way, listen to this in Romans 11. He says, I say then, did Israel stumble so as to fall? No, may it never be. But by their transgression, and he's referring there to their rejecting of Jesus, by the nation's rejection of Jesus, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. And then he asks the question, and I'm gonna put some terminology here in place of the pronouns just so it's easier to follow. Now, if Israel's transgression in rejecting Jesus is riches for the Gentile world, 
and their failure, Israel's failure, is riches for us, then how much more will their fulfillment be? Or said simply, how much better will it be for us when they do the right thing? If they're doing the wrong thing, blessed us, well, when they do the right thing, how much more will we be blessed? Well, the answer is you will be, because that's what's going to trigger the kingdom and bring us all into it with them. The picture here is, when the nation of Israel rejected David, he sat in Hebron and had lots of children and got ready for his court. When they received David, they're going to have all that blessing spread the whole nation over. David's coming to power will bring a kind of prosperity to the nation they've never seen before. It's the exact parallel of what we're waiting for in a bigger spiritual sense. All right, with that, we get to our last section for the night, the political shift that now opens the door for David to step into the role as king. That's in 2 Samuel 3, 6. It came about while there was a war between the house of Saul and the house of David that Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, why have you gone in to my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show kindness to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers, to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hands of David, and yet today you charge me with a guilt concerning the woman. May God do so to Abner, and more also if, as the Lord has sworn to David, I do not accomplish this for him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to establish the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan even to Beersheba. And he could no longer answer Abner a word because he was afraid of him. So here's what just happened. As you have the war raging between north and south, which we've already talked about, Abner decides he needs a backup plan. So it says here he decides to, quote, strengthen his position within the house of Saul. Now remember, Abner's the true power in the north, but Ishbosheth is the one on the throne. And even though he's a figurehead as Saul's son, uh, he's got the title, he's got the rewards, that come, the perks you know, that come with the job, and even if he's not making many decisions right now, if he ever got it in his mind to actually rule, to actually be in charge, well, that might mean that Abner gets pushed out. And as the country is starting to get pressured from David and they're starting to become the, the fracturing of whether they can last in power or what will come from that, Abner sees a way to make himself strong in the house of Saul so that at least he has some perch on which to stand in whatever negotiations or struggle for power might come up. Right now, he's just a hired hand. He wants to get a little higher on the pecking order. And he decides to have sexual relations with a royal concubine. Now, concubines were a type of wife that powerful men like kings would take for themselves in order to ensure that they had an heir to the throne. So a concubine was effectively a slave, a slave wife. They did not enjoy the freedoms and privileges of a true wife in the home, but they were required to have sexual relations with the king. And as a fact, in effect, they're baby-making machines. That was their goal. That's why they existed. And they, you, know, you might think, oh, guys just want to have women and have sex. I'm not saying that didn't play into it, but I'm saying the main attraction was that they were just there for making babies. Because, and that, you see that with uh, Abraham and Sarai. That's why they had Hagar. She's a concubine under those circumstances. So the goal here is enough sons so that no matter what happens, disease, war, uh, enemies, I'll have somebody live long enough to take the throne in my name. And so you just keep producing heirs. Well, Saul's gone, but his concubines are still around, and they were property, 
So his son inherited them. So these are now his, but they belong to his father in the sense that that's where they got their start. So one day, Abner decides he'll take one of these concubines, this gal named Ritzvah, and he will make an heir with her, the idea being that if he can produce a son out of her, it might be mistaken for Ishbosheth's at some point and kind of be raised in the house as a king, but he'll know secretly this is my real son, and he can always have Ritzvah testify to that, and as a result, he might become more powerful than anyone if he can get his son to be the next one on the throne. Now he's that much more in control through his son. This is just a, an elaborate plan to get his own heir somewhere in the line of succession. And so Ishbosheth learns about this. And in verse 7, he says, Why did you do this? Now keep in mind, he's not saying, Why did you have to, want to have sex with a woman? That's not the issue. Ishbosheth may be weak, but he's not, apparently not stupid. He understood the point of this. And so he's effectively saying, why are you trying to betray me? Or why are you trying to take my throne? And he challenges Abner. The fact that he challenges Abner with the question, rather than killing him on the spot, is evidence of his weakness. Any other king under these circumstances, the moment he heard about it, he would have killed the the man and probably the woman to ensure there was no heir coming. So Abner knows at this point that his game is up. That is, he knows he's been exposed as a man who's trying to usurp Ishbosheth's reign. But he also knows Ishbosheth is weak and he knows he has a lot of control over him. And so he probably is playing the odds here as he thinks about his response. Uh, at the very least, his influence over Ishbosheth now is ruined. Ishbosheth's not going to trust him anymore, not going to listen to him anymore. And if any son comes out of this concubine, he knows it's going to be killed. Ishbosheth is not going to let him live. So he's got virtually nothing going for him now. Now, worst case, you could see Ishbosheth get enough gumption to actually kill the man at some point. So he'll be looking over his shoulder all the time. So it's not a situation he can stomach. He's been caught red-handed. And so he makes this calculated decision in the moment to display indignation and to claim to be the one insulted and the one mistreated. And you notice, he never denies the charge. Instead, he just points to all that he's done to support Ishbosheth. I, I love the way he frames it. I didn't turn you over to David, right? And you know, all of this is just his own act here. He is hoping to make a strong enough stand to hold off Ishbosheth from doing anything rash, which obviously works because the pretender king here is too afraid to react. Um, and in the time he has, he'll work out a deal with David. I want you to notice that one phrase when he says, am I a, a dog's head for Judah? Uh, in the English, you don't have any understanding of what that means. It's a euphemism for a male prostitute. And so what he's saying is, do you think I'm a prostitute for Judah, that I came up here to bed this concubine on, you know, in other words, am I a traitor? Well, that's not the charge. You see how he's, he's set up a straw man. We're not calling you a traitor. We're saying you're a usurper. It's not that you're working for Judah, it's you're working against me. I mean, he's trying to change the conversation. It's all an act, and uh, it has the effect of delaying the matter long enough that he can begin to work a problem with David. And he uses this excuse now in order to shift his loyalties to David. It's interesting, he doesn't even run away from Ishbosheth. He stays there. Ishbosheth is so weak, he's not really that worried about being killed, at least not right away. And in the last three minutes, let's look at the last little section. Verse 12, then Abner sent messages to David in his place, saying, whose is the land? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel over to you. He said, 
David said, good, I'll make a covenant with you, but I demand one thing of you, namely, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Micah, Saul's daughter, when you come to see me. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth and Saul's son, saying, give me my wife Micah, to whom I was betrothed for, for, for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish, but her husband went with her, weeping as he went, and followed her as far as Baharim. Then Abner said to him, go, return. So he returned. So Abner sends messengers to David. He says, eh, whose land is this? You know, kind of, yeah, it's yours. You can have it. Let's make a covenant. I'll, I'll make sure you get it all. What he's basically promising David is, I'll make sure you get it all if you promise me my job in your cabinet. I want to be the commander of your army. And David leaps at the chance to get the upper hand and put this whole conflict to rest, but he's shrewd enough to know, I don't know if I can trust this guy. So his test for whether he can trust Abner is to make this request. If Abner can pull this off, he knows Abner's got the power and the control and the willingness to actually do what he's promising to do. David says, I want my wife. Now, Micah was one of Saul's daughters, and when David was in Saul's good grace at the time, uh, David fell in love with Micah, Micah fell in love with David, and Saul promised David he could have his daughter, Micah, if David delivered 100 Philistine foreskins to Saul. I don't know what registry you get on for that, <laughs> but apparently that was the kind of gift you gave in that day. Anyway, David hits the goal, and as a result, Saul keeps his word, he gets Micah as a wife, and they had a true loving relationship. Uh, later, though, when Saul begins to chase David away, David has no choice but to flee, and Micah helps him escape and does so sacrificially, leaving, basically, she stays behind while her husband has to leave and, and run, and they never really spend any time together after that. And, in fact, after David is gone, Saul forces his daughter to marry another man, the man we just heard about, and ever since then, they've been apart. Now David says, if you can give me that woman again, That'll not only prove your loyalty to me, but it'll prove you have the power to build this alliance. Go back there and do that. And he wants to reestablish his marriage to Saul's daughter. Now, he's doing this not just out of love, if there is any love at this point. It's mainly to appease the north. This is Saul's daughter. If he marries Saul's daughter and has Saul's daughter in his court, the northern tribes have an added reason to support David as their king because there's that linkage now between David's family and Saul. And Abner doesn't care, so Abner agrees to the terms because he knows he can pull it off. He has the power to do this. Now, we don't know how he does it, but you see the effect of it because when David sends messengers to his enemy, Ishbosheth, expecting this request to be met, it is. And the only answer for why that would have happened is if Abner had a way to work that out. And then you see Micah's circumstances, and it's kind of surprising. Her new husband seems to genuinely care for this woman. He is distraught at seeing her taken from him, and he follows her all the way to the border of Judah. Uh, the place that was mentioned there is just above the blue line. Basically, he, he went with her as far as he could before he got into enemy territory, and he's crying the whole way. This is not a five-minute walk. This is a couple-of-day walk. And so obviously, in the 17 years or so that this man has been married to her, uh, there's a genuine bond. And I, you know, it doesn't say much about her response here, but it would surprise me if she wasn't at least somewhat similarly emotional about it. 
So David's request is, is deeply hurting this man, ending his marriage to the woman he loved, all for political reasons, we would think, not likely romantic reasons. It's kind of a cold-hearted move on David's part, and it foreshadows something he's gonna do exactly like this again in an even worse way. But you notice you don't see David inquiring of the Lord on any of these moves, right? In fact, he's violating yet another law by bringing Micah back to himself. The law says in Deuteronomy 24 that a broken marriage cannot be restored if another marriage has taken place in the meantime. Deuteronomy 24.1, when a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from her house and she leaves the house and goes and becomes another man's wife, If this latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled, for this is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land when the Lord your God gives you uh, as an inheritance. So there is no way David could ever have Micah again because Micah has remarried. And for that matter, David's got multiple wives. He shouldn't be doing it either. And this, again, is the central weakness in David's life, taking women when he wanted, for any reason, and you notice his conversations with God go conspicuously silent when he's making these decisions. Um, He acts in his flesh, and although God blesses him in the outcome because that's suiting God's own purposes, there are consequences. I think it's safe to say Every believer has at least one area in their life they're weak in where they tend to act the same way all the time and it's habitual and they can't seem to get full control over it. Some of us have more than one. Um, They're kind of our secret sin or maybe not so secret. It's where we go time and again when we want comfort, when we want to feel good about ourselves, when we want something that makes us uh, kind of forget the things we don't like about our life or our world. And every time you find yourself in that place, You know that you shouldn't be there. You know you shouldn't have done it again. You feel your flesh drawing you in there again. And I think like David, it might be the one thing that stands in contrast to an otherwise good testimony, an otherwise good life lived for the Lord. Or maybe you're the kind of person where it's just the tip of an iceberg, but either way, it's where you need to start in your fight against the flesh. Whatever your central weakness is, is your first opportunity. How much differently would David's story have gone if he had taken his weakness with women seriously early in his life and found ways to mitigate against that draw, that, that tendency? How much differently would the story of David be without Bathsheba? Now, I get, you, I get the fact that there's consequences of it that were used for good by God, but I'm not saying he couldn't have found other ways to do that without the sin in the middle of it. How many pains and sorrows would David have avoided? And even now, you see David starting to sow the seeds of that trouble with Micah. And that's where we're gonna end tonight, just recognizing David still received God's grace and his blessing because God intended to do that regardless of whether he was doing everything he should. But to balance that, the mistakes we make bring their own form of consequences sometimes, and God will allow that as he chooses so that we might learn from it. So you need to separate those two. God is not up in heaven with a big belt or a stick taking it at us whenever we do the wrong thing. He is up there extending grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy because we were worse when he found us the first time than we are now, right? But in the meantime, he is teaching us how to do better and as we make mistakes, we'll see at times the natural consequence of those mistakes, which God allows in the hope that we'd learn better. Separating those two is important to understanding the grace of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for grace.
grace in David's life, grace in my life. I thank you, Father, that you don't ask us to obey before you show us your blessing. But you do ask us to obey. And so, Father, I ask for the grace to crucify our flesh, the grace to counsel, to receive your counsel when we need it, to ask and hear you when we should, and to follow what you tell us. Bring us back next week, Father. Help us bring friends. Show us someone we can invite. Let our knowledge of the word go beyond ourselves and help us, Father, to encourage others in the pursuit of it. And Father, as we continue, we continue to look for the way you'll bless us as we study. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.